All right. In, in James 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Well, that passage is never more true than when we look at the life of King David, uh, because while he was a man with a heart after God, he also made some very serious miscalculations in his personal life. He had more than one marriage. He had five marriages. He had, uh, hun- I mean, he had, I don't know how many, not a hundred, but close to concubines. And uh, he was a very poor father to his children who were born to him by these many wives. And so here David is, a man after God's own heart, but there's a side of him that was far from God, far from the ways of the Lord. And yet the Bible doesn't hide that about David from us. It tells us that David was an imperfect man. In fact, if you really want to look at it, David, uh, in, in the bloodline of Jesus Christ, of course, he's the son of who? David. So David is in the bloodline. But so is Rahab, who was a prostitute, in the bloodline of our Lord and Savior. So the point is that God can still use imperfect people, people who are involved in sin, who had a sinful past, people who were discarded by the people of their their day, but God did not discard them. God knows the heart, and He can see what's in the heart. He knows whether a heart is bent towards Him or is bent towards sin. And so God continued to use David, even though he was an imperfect man. He bore children from all these women, and in chapter 18 we see this, this rotten fruit fall from the tree. David's the one who bore these, these children out of wrong relationships. He did not parent them as God would have us parent our children. The Bible clearly says that God disciplines us because He loves us, and He expects the same of a parent to a child. Well, David didn't do that. David was soft on sin in the lives of his children, and because of it, he brought forth bad fruit. And tonight we're going to see the outcome of that bad fruit. It does lead, sin leads to destruction, just as James said. So let's pick up at verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Just to give you an update what we're talking about so it makes sense to you, uh, David now has fled. He's crossed the Jordan River. He's in the edge of the wilderness and Absalom has taken the throne, and now Absalom, at the advice of Hushai, who was actually David's friend, uh, who David placed under Absalom uh, like a spy to give Absalom advice that would throw off or thwart the advice of his own, uh, his own counselor. And the advice was, you need to raise up the greatest army that Israel can raise up, and you... Uh, Absalom need to go out and fight against David and take him out. And then all of Israel will know that you're the king. 
And so that's exactly what Absalom did. David, on the other hand, has, was ready to go to war too. He said, I'm going to go with you to war. He raised up three captains or commanders of his military, and he wanted those three to, to handle different aspects of the war. But he said, I'm going to ride out there with you. And they said, no, you're not. And so this is what's happening. This is where we are in our text. Uh, he's just raised up these commanders, three of them, and they were commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out, verse 2, the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, and the son of Zeruiah, and Joab's brother, that's who uh, Abishai is, and then one-third under the command of uh, Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. Stay here. So the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and thousands. And David, really at that time, uh, he numbered the people that were with him. He was keeping track of the, the numbers, which God would later reprimand him for. Uh, he said, you're not supposed to count how many you have. I'm with you. When you have me, you don't need to count. It doesn't matter how big their army is. You have me. But in this case, he did count, and uh, he sent the, the leaders out into the battlefield. Now, David knew that the commander uh, belonged out in the battle. What he had to do was give up commanding and allow others to serve in that capacity. And so he, he took the advice of his commanders. He stayed back. You say, why would he do that? Why would he take the advice of the commanders and stay back? Well, maybe because he remembers all too well the last time that he should have been at battle and he stayed home. And that's when he had the affair with Bathsheba. But now he's listening to others and they're saying, in this situation, you don't want to go to battle. You're older. They will look for you. If you're there, they will pin, they will put the crosshairs on you and come after you. And so he, he followed the advice. Uh, I, love, I love how uh, he tells him, I'm, I, you can just see David, you know, I'm going to go to battle with you. And they're like, absolutely not. You're not going anywhere. You're staying here. Here, here the commanders are telling David what to do, you know. And he's listening, okay. I think there's three reasons why he listened. Write these down if you want. Number one, his life was more valuable Remember what the commander said? You are worth 10,000 of us, so therefore you shouldn't go out there. They're going to look for you. Number two, he could, bring, he could bring reserves if needed. That's what they said to him. Stay here in the city, and if we need more, you can send them out to us. And then thirdly, they understood that it would be hard for David to fight against his own son. That was not spoken, but that's the unspoken concern, really. That's the key. If you go out to battle and we're going up against your son, Absalom, who is a rebellious child and has taken over the throne, taken it from you, uh, uh, we know how you'll handle it. You'll get out there and see him and you won't, you won't 
take care of business because you're weak, you're soft, you're not a disciplinarian, so you need to stay home. So David gave the right response. Whatever seems best to you, I will do. Yeah, so, in, in, and I think that the response comes out of a spirit of brokenness. David has, up to this point in time, he's shown great pride in different things, but now God's broken him. He walked away from, the, from Jerusalem, gave it up to his son, and he, what did he say? It's the Lord's business. If the Lord wants me to become king again, he'll, he'll do that. If not, I'm okay with not, I'll live in the wilderness. So he's a really a broken man, so he was listening to others. Now, just a leadership lesson real quick. Uh, David didn't give up leadership even while he was down. What he did was practice good leadership. Good leaders listen to wise counsel. You don't always show that you're a leader by just doing whatever you want. Leadership exudes from a person who can listen well and then take the best advice and go with it. And in this case, David's showing good leadership. He really is. You're only as good, I like this, you're only as good as the people around you. None of us should ever forget that. And that's not just in the business world of, le of leadership. That's in the home. Parents, you're only as good as the children around you. If you don't take time to raise your children in the Lord, believe me, it'll come back and haunt you. And even if you raise them right, it doesn't, that's not a guarantee that the children won't rebel, at least one of them or two of them. But, but still, you're only as good as those around you. And as a kid growing up, I didn't understand that principle, but I, but I, I believed it. I felt safe in my parents' home. I, 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 I was disciplined, probably more than I should have been, but anyway, um, <laughs> I was disciplined, and, and there was a part of me that was thankful because I had friends whose parents didn't discipline. And there were even times where those kids, my friends, wished that my parents were their parents. When we were a little older, you know, and I could drive a car, 17, 16, 17 years old, and, okay, where are you going? And you need to be home by, you know, when I was probably 6, 17, it was be home by 9 o'clock. When I was a senior, be home by midnight, whatever, 11, midnight, whatever it was. Their parents never even asked. They didn't even know what time they'd be coming home. And when I would tell my friends, yeah, i got to be back by 11, they're like, wow, I wish my parents would set those kind of parameters. So you're only as good as the people around you. And you're only as confident as the people around you. There's something in that, and David is practicing good leadership here. So the army marched out to battle while David stood at the gate. These men were willing to take on sacrifice and danger for the benefit of their king. Boy, they really were loyal to David. And by the way, they weren't loyal because David is this strong man who's at the top of his game. David walked out of the city of Jerusalem, crossed the Kidron Valley with his head down. He was ashamed for the way he had raised his boys. He was ashamed for the outcome of their lives. 
he knew that he had messed up. He was not a proud man at that point. He was a broken man. And the people followed him. Sometimes we think the only reason people follow is because we show confidence. You know, we've got it all together. That's not why people follow. They want to follow somebody who's real, who can experience brokenness like they can, who, who God can speak to and correct like he speaks and corrects them. And they saw that in David, and it warmed them. It, it endeared them even more to David so that when it was time to go to war, no, David, you stay back. We'll take care of it. They were with him. They were fully committed to him. I just think it's beautiful. So their devotion to David is really for you and I tonight because we, we need to take this, this story, this, this narrative of David going against Absalom. Uh, we need to understand how to translate that into our own lives today. How does this become practical for our lives today? And I will tell you that just as they were loyal to David, we must be loyal to Jesus Christ. He has given us a command. It was not optional. It was not a suggestion. He said, go into the world. David stood at the gate as his soldiers marched in front of him out to battle because they believed so much in their king. And we, right now, have a, the Bible says in Hebrews, that we have a great cloud of witnesses who are watching us as we march out into the battle of this world, bringing the name of Jesus wherever we go. The Lord is standing there. Jesus is not sitting. He's standing at the right hand of God. I believe that with all my heart. And there is a biblical reference for it. It's when... Uh, Stephen was stoned to death and as he's being stoned and he's all of a sudden God pulls back the curtain of, of eternity and he sees, the Bible says he sees Jesus who's standing at the right hand of God. He wasn't sitting. As Stephen was, was taking the hits, as Stephen was being persecuted for the sake of his Savior, Jesus was standing and looking, fully vested in what's happening to Stephen. Who, who knows that he's not cheering him on? Isn't that wonderful? So it's not like we're, we're going out and fighting a losing battle. We're fighting a victorious battle. Jesus already defeated sin. He already defeated Satan on the cross. We just need to go because God commands us to go, to talk to people. And we need to be loyal to Jesus. By the way, David was the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of kings. How much more we should be faithful and loyal to share the gospel with people in our day, knowing that we're going into a battle. But he's worth it, isn't he? Yeah. Isn't our Lord worth it? And so that's what we do. Verse 5, And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, the three commanders. He said, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. <laughs> well, we expect to hear David say that, right? He's already soft on Absalom. And now going into battle, he's like, Whatever you do, don't kill him. 
You know, be gentle with him. Seriously? The kid who for four years was talking behind your back, building people, alliances with your own leaders and advisors and behind your back, and then going off and announcing that he's the king and then coming to Jerusalem and taking over the kingship and sleeping with your concubines, and you want us to be gentle with him? And you're not talking to a bunch of mealy-mouthed men here. You're talking to three army commanders. Be gentle with him. Could you see uh, Schwarzkopf being, somebody saying to Schwarzkopf, uh, Bush, be, be gentle with, with the Iraqis. Be gentle. You think Schwarzkopf would take that news? And Okay, well, that's about how Joab felt, okay? That's probably a pretty good picture here, okay? So the army went out into field against Israel and battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. That's where they selected to do battle at the forest of Ephraim. Not that the whole battle was fought in a forest, but it was at the forest. So it's the region right there where there's this great forest, okay? And the men of Israel were defeated there. So Absalom's men, he had all of Israel to select his men from to go up against David and his mighty men. So you're talking about a huge army against a small army. And yet, the huge army took great defeat by the servants of David. And, and I like how he says that. Not by the commanders. He says, by the servants of David. It's always back the loyalty to David. That's why they're fighting. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Interesting. So let's break this down, verses 6 through 8. What we see here is a divided kingdom. You've got all Israel who's fighting for Absalom because he's won their favor. And then you've got David and his mighty men and a few others that he's gathered together. Those who were in Jerusalem when David was king and who remained loyal. And when David fled, they fled with him. So... Uh, in the end, it was the experienced leadership of David and his men, probably Joab being crucial in this decision, to fight by the forest. So that as they began to rout the enemy, what would you do if you were the enemy and you saw that you're being routed? You would run for protection. They ran to the forest. But what they weren't thinking of, because they're running out of fear, they're not running out of wisdom... But that's exactly where David wanted them to run. So this whole thing is being played out just as God it gave David insight. So David and Joab were great military strategists, and they're carrying out this plan. And, and it really, and when it says that, that the forest devoured more men than the, that day than the sword, uh, that can imply several things. One that God fought for David in supernatural ways. Somehow God did some things that were just supernatural. I'll even give you an example of that in just a second. Uh, it's interesting that the soldiers loyal to uh, Absalom seem to be swallowed up by the forest. Okay, uh, This forest had thick oaks. It had tangled briars. This forest had concealed dangerous cliffs that you didn't know was a cliff until you were right up on it. 
And if you're running in fear, you probably couldn't stop quick enough. This forest had deep caverns. And so this is an interesting location for an enemy to have to retreat to. And they're still chasing them. So it's not like they get to the trees and then they slow down. No, because David's men are coming behind them. The supernatural intervention of God would be that as these men were running through the forest and David's men are coming after them, uh, Israel lost lives. David's men did not lose their life. Now, there is something to be said about the, uh, uh, those, who are, those who are being chased and those who are doing the chasing, you know. You've got the predator and you've got the prey. And when you're the prey, you're not really looking ahead as much as you, you're every once in a while looking behind you. Where's the predator? How close are they? Well, it played out. The predator, he's able to see the whole thing. If there's a cliff, how does the predator know there's a cliff? Because the guy he's chasing goes, boop, 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 <laughs> So it's like they had the advantage. That's a beautiful thing, how God raised up this, this scenario, and Israel was routed on the field, and then they were chased down in the woods, and more died by the forest than, than by the sword. Now, one theologian, I think it was Clark, who said, it is generally supposed that when the army was broken, they took to the woods where they fell into pits, swamps, and other entanglements, and this allowed David's men to hewn them down. Okay? So there are a few records that indicate it might have also been wild beasts. The Syrians, in their record of this, this battle, uh, there's like three different groups that also, in their ancient... Uh, manuscripts, they, they actually record this battle. And they tend to believe it was wild beasts that took. Which again, okay, why did the wild beasts only take Israel and not David's men? So there's probably the, the supernatural intervention of God Almighty who's moving in behalf of David. So, uh, verse 9, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, Absalom was riding on his mule. He's going to battle on a mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth. I love how the Bible describes that. He's suspended between heaven and earth. While the mule that was under him went on. <laughs> you can have a lot of fun of this in a sermon, I'm telling you. Why is Absalom even there? Thank you. Exactly right. Remember when Husay went to Absalom and presented this advice, and he said, you are the king. You should go out. Take your men. Don't let your advisor go and do it by night, which would have worked because David wasn't even across the Jordan yet. But you just wait. Raise up a mighty army. You go out, and the whole time he's sharing this picture, Absalom is just puffing up even more and more. Yes, that's what I'll do. So here he is, riding on a donkey. You say, why a donkey? Well, believe it or not, a donkey is a far more safe animal to ride than a horse. Did you know that a donkey is sure-footed? A horse is not. If you travel out to the Grand Canyon, you can actually do the tours where you take a hike down into the canyon. They don't take horses. 
They take donkeys. A donkey will not risk life. A mule, mule, thank you, thank you. But they won't risk life. Amen. Well, so here he is. So, and by the way, people, we've always thought that mules, donkeys, that they're, that they're stubborn. Guess what? Uh, did you know they're smarter than a horse? So here's this old donkey with this guy riding on the back, and he's beating him and telling him to keep going, running through a forest that is what? Not safe. That goes against everything a donkey or a mule would ever want. And then he's out there, and he probably sees these low-hanging oaks, and he's thinking, I can run under that oak and get rid of this guy on the back. <laughs> now, you say, come on, Pastor Greg, you're exaggerating. Have you ever been on a horse that looks for a way to get you off? Amen. They're smarter than you think. And donkeys and mules are smarter than horses. So here he is. He gets his hair, which is his... That's his greatest van vanity is his hair. Beautiful hair, long hair, and it's thick hair. And it gets caught in the thicket of an oak. And he's hanging, and he can't release himself. His sword is on that stinking donkey riding off. That donkey's just as happy as he can be. He's like, do-do-do-do-do-do. I'm a free man now. You're not as smart as you thought you were. And... Uh, Here's, here's Absalom just hanging by his hair, you know. And uh, just get the picture, you know. This is, you can't make this stuff up. This is really awesome that God would put these stories in the Bible for us to understand. Yeah, that little donkey's going, I'm going to lose this clown right under this, <laughs> this oak tree right here. And he sure did. It worked. Uh, in the end, it was Absalom's vanity that did him in. That's what got him on the field to begin with. I'm a king. He's not a king. I'm majestic. I'm going to ride in with my army. People will know how awesome I am. He's not awesome. He's a, he's a weasel. Went behind the king's back and turned people towards him and away from the king. I once knew a pastor who was a great pulpiteer. In the pulpit, this guy was a great speaker. He could mesmerize the crowd. Known for his great preaching. Offered by many people around to come preach. Uh, but his strength was also his greatest weakness. Because when he came out of the pulpit, he had the personality of a doorknob. And... And uh, he and the worship leader of that church, and I was on staff, they got into this competition. Now, this is, I'll show you how fleshly church can get. On every Sunday, they would, they would go back and forth to see which one could go longer than the other. So the worship leader would, would linger in the worship longer, and then the preacher would get up and say, folks, just let me preach here. Just let me preach. Like, why is it about you preaching? And then he would go longer so that the worship leader would be upset. This went on until finally this guy, his pride, led him to step down as a pastor and go across town and start another church, which failed. His strength was his greatest weakness because his strength 
encompassed great pride. By the way, whatever your greatest strength is, I could go around the room. I could tell you what I see as your strength. I, I could. Oh, if it's your greatest strength, I could tell you a strength in each one of you. But that strength, as I speak about it with you and tell you, Bill, you know, you're, you are a people person. When you come into a room, man, you just start giving hugs and, and loving on people and praying with people, and people just can't wait to get over and say hi to you. Well, but pride could enter you right now as I'm saying that and puff yourself up. Our strengths can be a weakness. And that's what took Absalom out. It was his own strength of him thinking that he was so awesome and I'm smarter than my father and I'm going to lead differently than my father. And uh, in the end, he hung himself what by his hair. Come on. How smart is that? Uh, his glory became his curse. That's why none of us should seek glory. Glory belongs to the Lord. And now Absalom is hanging in the forest from his beautiful thick hair. Verse 10, And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. It sounds funny, hanging in an oak. I'm sure he told him by his hair. Joab said to the man who told him, what you, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. And the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, for in, in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. You'd have left me out there, thrown me under the bus, let him take me out. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. You're making too much sense, so I'm going to go just take care of business. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. You might be asking, why would they need to strike him if Joab threw three spears through his heart? Well, when the, in Hebrew... When it mentions the heart, it doesn't always mean literally that internal organ of the heart. It means the midsection. It can mean the midsection. So uh, Joab hit him with three spears in the midsection. And so his ten young men surrounded Absalom and finally took him out, put him out of his misery. Uh, then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. So see, they, they're still pursuing in the woods. For Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. So just looking at this passage a little bit closer, uh, we see Joab who disobeys the order of David. 
one of his commanders completely disobeyed the order. He took matters into his own hand. He took three spears and he, he ran them through Absalom. But what Absalom received from Joab's perspective is what he deserved. He didn't deserve to live. He knew that if he brought him back, David would not kill him. And this man needed to die for what he's done. He's a, from Joab's perspective, he's a danger to all of Israel. He's a danger to the king. He's a danger to our soldiers. Because if he's done this once, he could do it again. So he ran him through. So Joab was correct in his discernment of David as a father. But he, was, he wasn't right. He was incorrect. And now he handled the king's request. So on, in, one, in one sense, he was doing the right thing, but in the other sense, he disobeyed the king. And now Absalom is dead. And David's going to deal with this matter, and it's not going to be easy on David, that's for sure. Uh, one theologian, Clark, said, Long ago he should have died by the hand of justice, and now all his crimes are visited on him in his last act of rebellion. Yet in the present circumstances... Joab's act was base and disloyal and a cowardly murder. But notice the irony of this situation, folks. The rebellious Absalom had his life taken from him in a rebellious act done by Joab. Sometimes the Lord orders it up that way. You show rebellion and God allows rebellion to take you out. An example in modern time would be somebody who is... Let's say that they are a Christian. They know the Lord. But in weakness one night, they go to a bar. They think they're going to go there and witness. They end up drinking and they get drunk. Get in their car, slam into a tree and lose their life. Their own rebellion led to a rebellious act of their own death. It's the way it plays out in life. And so how we treat others is oftentimes how we get treated. That's why you want to treat people the way you want to be treated, right? And Absalom was not that kind of a guy. He just mistreated everybody, thought of himself, self-centered, and yet uh, God said, okay, we'll let that self-centeredness take you out. The thing you love the most, your beautiful long flowing hair, is going to take you out. Wow. He got what he deserved. And Joab would be held accountable for what he did to Absalom, both by God and eventually uh, by David. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, if you want to write it down, 1 Kings 2, 5 and 6, you can read about how David handled this with Joab. But why did Joab send in ten young men to finish off Absalom? Well, these were boys who were in training. They start out as armor bearers, and eventually they're going to be warriors. And they see promise in them. That's why they made them armor bearers. And so he's giving, letting them uh, have some of the, the joy of the kill. And it's a terrible way to look at it, but that's when you're talking about a military commander whose life is soaked in blood, that's how he thinks. Uh, the theologian Trapp said, As he had defiled his father's ten concubines, so by these ten youngsters he hath that little breath that was left in him beaten out of his body. Mm. Boy, the Bible does not hold back in descriptive detail, does it? In graphic uh, ways that people die. It's also interesting what they did with Absalom's body. They threw it into a large pit. Why? Joab never wanted there to be a memorial for Absalom. 
raised up. So we're going to bury the body under these heavy rocks and stone, uh, heavy, heavy stones, and uh, nobody will ever find it, and he cannot be memorialized. So Absalom's forces fled, and David's forces rallied to victory. Verse 18, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called... Excuse me, he called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. So this is what we would expect from a self-centered, self-promoting man like Absalom. Joab made sure that Absalom didn't have a memorial in death, but Absalom, even before his death, had set up a memorial for his life. Now, when Absalom says, I have no son to keep my, remembrance, my name in remembrance, that wasn't true. He had three sons. Uh, the record of that is 2 Samuel 14.27. So he had three sons. What we have to assume is that those three sons died. And so that's why he says, I have no sons to keep my name. Um, then verse 19, Ahimaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Remember now, this Ahimaz was one of the boys that, David actually, who wanted to follow David into the wilderness, and David said, no, I need you to stay, and you stay near to Jerusalem so that when word comes from the priest, you can run that message to me. So now Ahimaaz is wanting to do his job. This is what he was told by David to do. He wants to bring news. And so he said, Joaz said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall not carry news because the king's son is dead. So Joab is not wanting Ahimaaz, who is a friend of David, to bring such bad news to David. Okay? Then Joab said to the Cushite, Cushites are from the land of Cush, which is down in southeast, uh, I think it's southeast Egypt. And so uh, this Cushite, he told him, go tell the king whatever you have seen. So he wouldn't let Ahimaaz share the bad news. Well, first of all, the good news is we won the battle. Bad news is your son's dead. The king did not want to hear that. Um, so then he said, let's let the Cushite go tell him the whole thing. And so the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Uh, and verse 22, then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said to, uh, again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, so he never left the city gates. He, as soon as they left, he stayed right there waiting for the word. And the watchman went up on the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. And the watchman called out and told the king. The king said, if he is, done, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. And the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok the priest. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Remember now, Ahimaaz is out in front of the Cushite. So David thinks it's going to be good news. 
And the hymn as, uh, so verse 28, then the hymn as cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. Remember now, before you read further, remember David sent these men out and these men are so loyal. They are fighting this battle, willing to risk their lives for David. Not when David is the spectacular, strong, mighty king. He's now in hiding. But they have such love for him, respect for him, and they're loyal to him. And so what does this, what does Ahimaaz say? All praise goes to God for how he provided uh, deliverance for you, the king. He made it all about David's future, okay? But look at David's response. And the king said, it is well with the young man Absalom. What? You understand what, what the messenger just said? You won the battle. Your men fought for you. They won the battle for you. And God has delivered you to be the king again. All he could think about was Absalom. He set Israel over on the side. And him as answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. So he wasn't totally honest. He didn't want to be the one to break that news. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Now, he didn't directly say, your son died. He just said, I pray that all of the enemies of the king would end up like that young man. So David's only concern was Absalom's safety. He should have been more concerned for Israel as a nation than for his traitor son. But at the same time, David's question is an example of the great bond of love that we see between a parent and a child. It doesn't matter how much sin your child falls into, you will always love them deeply. You will always be concerned for their well-being. True? I like this Spurgeon quote. It's a little lengthy, but let me share it with you. Very good. Quote, he might have said, is the young man Absalom dead? Or if he is out of the way, there will be peace to my realm and rest to my troubled life. But no father, he is a father, he will love his own offspring. It is a father that speaks and a father's love can survive the enmity of a son. Our children may plunge into the worst of sins, but they are our children still. They may scoff at our God. They may tear out our heart to pieces with their wickedness. We cannot take complacency in them, but at the same time, we cannot unchild them nor erase their image from our hearts. Maybe the enemies of my Lord the King and all who may the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Mm. Verse 33, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber. 
over the gate and wept upon that news. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Five times, my son. Does that tell you how deeply he loved his boy? But it was a dysfunctional love. He never loved that boy like he should have when he was a kid. One of the ways that we show love to our children is that we don't let them get away with evil. When they do something wrong, we correct them because we love them. So here David is crying out, My son, my son, my son. Would I have died instead of my son? But the reality is, his son was evil. And David was not able. I think really what he's, I'll be honest, I think David at that point is now in anguish over the fact Absalom was just like me. He had some of the same traits. I've had an uncontrollable lust for women, and I have wives and concubines to show for it. I have children from different wives. And my son also had rebellion against God. Why was it him and not me? Hmm. I wrote down some thoughts here. One of the reasons for David's deep sorrow is that he knows he actually cultivated the soil that this tragedy happened in. He was soft on discipline because he was a disconnected parent. I think there's a lot of parents, Christian parents, who live to regret the way they raise their own children. It's inter interesting how the Bible takes a back seat to custom and the norms of society. There was a day when most Christian parents wouldn't hesitate to spank the child. I didn't say beat the child. We should never abuse our children. No excuse for that. But to spank. But because we are in this enlightened age and people think they're so smart, we don't need to spank a child. And so they, I know Christian parents who, with their children, they don't, they, they will tell you, don't ever use the word no in our home with our children. Because the psychologists, the, the, the lingering effect of them having a negative experience, all this nonsense. So what do you say to a child as you're standing on the front porch and you see them running towards the road and you hear a call, a, a car coming? Oh, son, please, please. Um, I can tell you what I'm going to do. Mark, no, stop now. I'm going to be as direct and firm as I possibly can while I'm running out towards him, right? That's called parenting. Christian parents who today are much like David. And they're going to raise up kids that, they'll, that will rebel. And they will go a different way. 
And down the road somewhere, that parent will probably regret why did we read so many books on psychology and the social sciences and we never believed the Bible. Again, the Bible doesn't ever tell us that abuse is the way that we should uh, raise our children. But it's just sad to me. David is a perfect example of this. And then also, I think, David, this deep sorrow, this, this anguish was because this whole thing started. This soil that Absalom died in, it was started with Bathsheba, David's own sin with Bathsheba. Not just sin with Bathsheba, but the sin with her husband. He killed her husband. Have him killed. And, and, and this is the product, this is the fruit that's coming up out of those kinds of terrible decisions. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never... This is what the Lord said to David back when he did what he did with Bathsheba. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. What was that name? Absalom and Timon as well. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Absalom. I think David's also in anguish because he cultivated tragedy out of his own sinful passions. He, when he was taking on these other women, he wasn't thinking ahead. He wasn't thinking about the fallout. He was just enjoying the moment. As Christians, we live in a very seductive world. We live in a sensual age where it's all about appealing to the five senses. And so Christians aren't used to not having their senses titillated. We have to have it. We become consumers in the church. I can understand going to Target, well, no, I don't understand anybody going to Target, but to a, a store and going in and uh, being a consumer. You're purchasing something. And if the price is higher in this store, you're going to go to another store. That's consumerism at its best. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But not in the church. You don't pick churches based on how they make you feel only. You also first and foremost, is the Spirit of the living God present? Is the Word of God being proclaimed faithfully? Is the church in fellowship, loving one another? There are many reasons that have nothing to do with just these warm, fuzzy feelings that we live on. This is invaded in the church. It's, it's, and, and our young people today, many of them are taken by this. In fact, many of them are sick of it because they watch their parents our age, get drawn into it. The baby boomers, big time consumers. And so the young people today who know the Lord are like, we don't want to have a lot. In fact, we're even thinking about getting off the grid, <laughs> you know, living off the grid. They, they just see it totally different now. And you can't blame them. We sowed the wrong soil for them to grow in. But thank God He's been able to save them from a lot of the things. Look, um, 
My parents were wonderful parents. We're sitting here tonight. I'm thankful that they're here. Um, were they perfect? No. There are things that probably I learned to do a little differently than they did. And guess what? My kids are now learning to do things a little different than Rini and I. <laughs> There's no perfect parents in any generation. God's not looking for you to be perfect. He wants you to give your best to Him as a parent. And my parents did that. And we try to do that with our kids. But there's always, you know, you're, you're refining, you're growing, you're learning. And, and that's the way it should be. But the Lord should be leading us in that. The Scripture should be leading us. It shouldn't be that we're coming up with these things from social sciences. I don't care what some Ph.D. guy says. I really don't. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, if it's a contrary to the Word of God, I'm going to go with the Word. Amen? If only David, who's the king, the son of David, who's in the heritage of Jesus, if only he had stuck with God's commands more, some of these things wouldn't have happened, but they did happen. So, David's undone. When it says that he was deeply sorrowful, it literally means he's coming apart. In the, in the Hebrew, it means, it's like the old Yiddish, uh, Oyesmir, uh, I'm undone. That's what, uh, that's what Isaiah said when he entered the temple and he saw the Lord seated on the throne, His train filling the temple, the smoke, the threshold shaking, and Isaiah sitting in the presence of God in this vision, and all of a sudden he yells out, Oh, yes, mere. I'm undone. I'm coming apart in the presence of God. I think David was having one of those come-to-Jesus moments at the death of his son and the anguish knowing if only I had done it differently. If only we could grasp this tonight. It might change some of the directions that we're on in this day. It's not too late for us. It's too late for David. Absalom's dead now. But it's not too late for us to change in some ways that line up more with the Word of God and less with the world. We don't want to bring consumerism into the church of Jesus Christ. We're not consumers. We're communers. We're worshipers. That's all that, that's the qualifier for a Christian is to be a worshiper of God. So how do you do that? You have to study this. And the more you know this, the more the deeper your worship will go of God and the better you'll be a parent and the better you'll be an employer or an employee and the more you'll share the gospel because you're walking in the ways of the Lord. We need this. Chuck Smith said it this way, So in the cry of David, we actually hear the cry of God for his lost children, his desire to forgive and restore. What David could not do, God did by dying in the place of rebellious sinners. Aren't you glad that God handled sin differently than David? Aren't you glad that after uh, Absalom was dead because of sin, all David could do was be in anguish and deep sorrow, resenting, regretting? Not God. God never sinned. He sees us in sin, and He immediately inputs a plan of redemption for us. It's a beautiful picture how God comes after us. And our Lord Jesus forgave us. He has given us grace to walk with Him even though we're imperfect. 
And we must carry that message to the world. It's We're commanded to do it. We've got to share the gospel. I pray this week before Sunday, you have opportunities, not one, many, to share Jesus with people. And then after you share Jesus, then say, and by the way, you can go to church with me Sunday. Would love to have you join me. Don't make it about church first. Make it about the Lord. Amen? Okay, you don't want to tell, talk about the body of Christ before you talk about the head of Christ. He's the head. Amen? Father, thank you for your love and thank you for this message tonight, this teaching from the Word of God that challenges us on so many different levels. Each one of us tonight probably hearing it differently because the Holy Spirit is very subjective in His ministry. It's not just one way that He's speaking to all of us. He's speaking to each of us differently, and we're thankful for that. And we're thankful that, that sin cannot keep us from the love of God. The Apostle Paul was so confident that he said, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Oh, may we leave tonight with that confidence. Hit us again and again with waves of your steadfast love that it might compel us to share the gospel with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.